What's up, everyone? Welcome to Scoutsiders, episode three. I'm your host, Chirag. I forgot to introduce myself the last couple episodes, but you guys know now. I'm joined, as usual, by our co-host, Pat Perry. Pat, how's it going this morning? Oh, dude, it's almost the end of January. First month of scouting under the belt. Couldn't be any better and uh, happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, uh, just super excited to, you know, get into the meat of our calendar here. And that's a good call out as to where we are in the calendar, end of January, heading into February. And so that's kind of going to be some of the things that we talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about the scouting calendar and we're going to talk about uh, just kind of where we are and also that air traffic. I mean, last I remember episode one, you had mentioned that aspect of scouts being kind of air traffic controllers. So I think that's a good area for us to like dig deeper into this episode. What do you think? No, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think this is like my favorite time of year because it, it, you know, for people who don't know, like the fall, it's all about like inventory, casting a wide net, you know, trying to see as many people as you possibly can. And then, you know, spring really narrows that focus to like, okay, who who are the guys we need more information on? And who are the guys we got to go out there and dig on that we think could be good? So it's, it's uh, a lot more specific in terms of what we're going out doing. Um, I know for you, from what I've been hearing, Southern California has been dealing with a lot of rain. So how is that managing your schedule and trying to make like daily decisions on where to go? Yeah, Pat, as a native Southern Californian, people just freak out when it's raining here. And then in the baseball community, it's even tougher because the field conditions aren't good for days afterwards. They don't have good drainage and things like that. So it just it starts to impact the the downstream of the calendar. So I think that's a good call out, though, is just far as being really adaptable in this job and having really good time management skills so that you kind of know what to do. You know, if a game gets a bang that you're going to go to or if the calendar looks iffy, I think you need to be having different ways of being productive, uh, you know, if those games don't come to fruition. Do you, um, you know, based on like a follow list you might have, do, do you try to like, maybe you wake up, you have a plan for the day. Um, do you make a secondary plan for like the guy that's right behind the guy you want to see and just kind of like work down your list and, and trying to manage your time? Yeah, I think now we're in that portion of the calendar where you do have to start getting more uh, focused on the schedules and and looking further ahead because you do want to you don't want to be running around with a shit like a chicken with your head cut off uh, like just because this game is happening today that you want to go to that game because you might the best time to see him might be next week because on the schedule you know they might be matched up against a good team good competition and. So if you're really only going to get so many looks at a player, you want them to be as valuable as possible. So I think this is that portion of the year where I'm really kind of starting to look deeper into the calendar as far as setting it up for the future. And that's where the rain comes into impact. The area code select is a huge event uh, and one of my favorite events in my scouting career so far going to it every year. And that's a little bit in jeopardy, but we'll see. I don't know what the forecasts look like as of this morning. Um, what about for you? Like you're in the four corners, so you got to deal with a lot of weather, I feel like. And 
it's a different dynamic. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I think there's two things that make my area unique. One, like just how spread everything is, um, you know, so you're trying to like look at that weather systems and cycles like across like four different states, like, you know, hey, I may, I may be in Phoenix or Surprise and hey, it looks like monsoon rain coming. Can I get to Denver? Can I get to Salt Lake City? Is there anything in Albuquerque? Um, you know, distance-wise, like that's obviously a huge swath of land. So, you know, trying to, okay, where's the best use of my time? Where's the best use of our resources? And where are we going to likely have a, a chance to see a guy that's high enough on my list It warrants the trip? Um, you know, I think the, the other component, too, that is unique about the Four Corners is, as you know, pitchers and catchers like probably like two and a half weeks away there's all the college baseball tournaments you've got just a ton of people that are that are coming in so you're constantly trying to manage you know it might be like five or six different people in terms of where to go see what to go do uh and and for me at times it can be daunting and that weather is like just the end all be all if things get hairy I was just about to mention that with the air traffic control piece and the weather and just the communication, right, of uh, organizing all those schedules, because I think it's one of the cool things about scouting is that the information, it's not always easy to come by. And, and you really do have to go and seek it out and get the updates and everything like that. And then you got to pass that information along to the individuals from your organization who are who are coming in from different parts of the country or the office or something like that to see players, uh, especially this time of the year, opening uh, opening of the calendar. And yeah, you guys have it tough in the four corners. We're, they call SoCal the country club for a reason, I think, you know, where it's the only area that I've scouted, but uh, it's, it's always sunny and your drives are never more than an hour and a half, really. And so, you know, when like you might be, Sometimes weather might get you. You're you're on the road, right? And uh, you're on your way somewhere in the four corners, and then you kind of have to pivot from there. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you you adapt and overcome. You know, it's uh, I think just like anytime you can get a good event, uh, like this last weekend, I was in Vegas, and I mean, it was you had the JC stuff going on, you had a ton of high school stuff. You know, as as a scout, you know, you're waking up at seven. You're, you're out of the hotel by, you know, 7.10. Uh, it's game at 8, game at 11, game at 1.30. You know, you grab a quick bite to eat on the road. Then you hit two more or three more games uh, before the day ends. Um, do you have any, like, tips or tricks to help you manage all that workload? Because, you know, I'm still – it's hell, it's Tuesday, and I'm still playing catch-up on some of my uh, video and, and notes. Yeah, I feel you. I'm in my third year and I just feel like every year it's a refining process. But my biggest tip is to just, I think what's worked for me, and I'm not always great at doing it, but especially on that weekend or a Sunday night, if you can block out some time and just plan out your week and sort of take a 20, 30 minutes and just sort of survey what schedules you have and everything like that and just kind of sort of chart out a, a map. And I think last year, I was a little bit further ahead than where I'm at this year as far as charting a course for the spring. And I felt like 
with the you know with the way socal is structured there's like so many of these big tournaments like pbr has a big tournament at the beginning of spring you've got the boris uh out here and those are kind of some of the things you plan around at great park there's always stuff going on where there's multiple teams and and so i'm always trying to target those kind of events and i found that to be super high yield where you can knock out a lot of uh, looks at different players at the same time. And, and then you have some more time on the, on the computer side, you know, to get all the work in that we have to do on that side as well. What about you? Do you have any tips? Hopefully that helps as far as like, my no, yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, I know the Guardian's really big on video, you know, and and even just doing simple recordings with my phone. You know, you come back from a, a weekend, you're like, my God, I've got 200 video clips that I just shot on my phone that, you know, you need to package, make sure that it's clean, get it uploaded. And it's, you know, that's a that's a daunting process in in and of itself, let alone, you know, the reports, the documentation of what you saw, all the different things that I think as scouts can be separators, those little nuanced notes. Um, and then at simultaneously gearing up for the next week of runs, like, you know, trying to figure out, okay, I'll be at AC Select on Sunday, working backwards, where am I going? What am I doing? Um, you know, I think not to mention too, where we started air traffic controlling, I'm trying to manage like three or four people in the four corners. So you know, the list just goes on and on. And I really like that, you know, 20 to 30 minute, hey, replan your week, you know, bucket your time so that you know what you're doing. Um, psychologically, this is a fun one. I was chewing on this. So I was at a game on uh, would have been Saturday morning. There's probably 50 scouts in the house, all seeing a, a left hander from California. I, I won't say his name. You could probably figure it out. But uh, nonetheless, they're watching, watch two innings. I go from a game with 50 scouts to a game where I'm the only scouts or excuse me, I'm the only scout. So Shirag to you psychologically, what's it like when you go into a game and you're the only guy there? That is a awesome question. And I think there's two layers of it where on one side of it it's kind of nice to be the only scout at the yard where you can really just focus in on the game and the player and everything like that and and really just kind of be undistracted because when you go to the yard and there's 50 scouts there or you know a dozen or, or however many scouts there you you know them right you got to say you got to say hello i like all these guys and everything so we exchange pleasantries but there's distractions, right? You know, and you've got things to do, especially us for Cleveland. We've got to make sure we've got, you know, some of our pregame stuff checked off and done prior to the game. Um, so, but I think the other layer of it is you want to make sure you're at the right games, you know, because there is a opportunity cost, right? And you want to make sure that you are sort of on the right track sometimes you kind of you want to balance that with expectations right like did you go in there thinking there would be a lot of scouts or did you go in there thinking there would be you know you might be the only guy because you know this might be an under the radar player or a player who is a high school player who is unlikely to sign or something like that who may not be heavily scouted you know so i think that's kind of how i think about it but i do enjoy 
I really enjoy like being at a baseball game by myself and just being a baseball scout, just watching the game. Yeah, you know, D Dean Curley last year was one uh, from Northview High School that, uh, you know, I went out there two or three times and I felt like every time I was there, there I was either one of one or one of two. And, you know, that was kind of surprising to me. It, like it, it starts to make you question, like, am I missing something here? Like, do other people not think he's good? Is it the signability? Um those dynamics are strange, but I think opportunity cost is a great word, you know, on where we started with kind of that scheduling component. I know definitely like if I'm walking into a ballpark with the expectation, this is going to be a good player and I'm the only scout there. I, I do start to question myself and like, man, what was I seeing that brought me out here and, and why am I the only one? Yeah, that's information, right? Where you get new information when you go to the yard, you go to Northview, or you go watch Dean Curley play, and you see, oh, man, this is a really good player. And I'm one of the only scouts or the only scout here. What's going on, right? So you have to reassess. And I think that's good that you, you know, that you reassess and kind of figure out Hey, what's going on? Um, do other guys like him? Maybe you start getting into your network a little bit and, and you can talk to other guys about it. Um, Dean's an interesting example, you know, because that's like Southern California scouting. He's committed, he was committed to University of Tennessee, a, a good player, older for the class, physical. There's a lot to like. I mean, when I went to go see him at one of the great park tournaments, uh, in like towards the middle or the end of the season, I remember. I mean, he was on fire. He was on fire. So I really thought uh, I was kind of with you where th there, there's kind of those cases sometimes throughout the spring where you continue to track a player and you're not sure sort of like what's what exactly is going on with, with this guy. And, and you kind of have to explain that, too, um, with with the work you do within your team system. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I think your own personal valuation of the player is what you have to get right. Uh, but I also do think there's that component of like sizing up the market and who's in on them, you know, because there's an opportunity cost for every player you take in the draft too. Like if you take one guy, well, there's 29 more guys that are going to get picked before you get a chance to pick again. So, you know, if you're off a round or two, you know, it could really impact like the other possibilities and selections that you can make. Yeah. Curly, I, you know, I thought was interesting just because the tools were loud. Like there seemed to be, you know, decent swing decisions that he made. Um, I know I've seen him impact a ball or two that, you know, was a pretty good shot. And he obviously he had a rocket arm. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Do you think, uh, would you have given him a million bucks? Too rich? Too poor? Man, those those decisions, political answers, those decisions are above my pay grade. But I'll give you a real answer. I think Dean is very talented and he, he's got good makeup too. his, he comes from a solid family. His mom is real nice. And so that matters to me. He was up trending physically. You know, I felt like he was getting stronger. He was getting better. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't quite go there. If I, if just because of the other players who are available at that type of price, 
he's close. I, I don't think that would be an outrageous conversation. But that's kind of the thing in SoCal, right? Where it's like you were the only guy. Maybe it's like this in other areas too, because I haven't done it. But you were the only guy at a game with Northview. But then, you know, I could be like, what if what if it comes draft day and then the Rangers pop Dean Curley? And, you know, hey, what if I didn't do much of a scouting process on on Dean and then they sign him for, you know, 800 or a million or something like that? And you, you got you to gotta kind of wear that, right? So I think there's that component to it of the just the beast of scouting what do you think uh, as far as like would you have given him a million uh, i don't know if he's gonna recoup a million in like two years like i just don't know if he's gonna do enough so uh, that's kind of how i like to frame it right you know if this guy goes to college where do i think he's likely to end up um I don't know. I, I don't see him like in the top 100, um, but I can see him like legitimately like fourth, fifth round, you know, um, would I have given him a million out of high school? Possibly would have entertained it. I don't think I would have blown up a draft just to get him. But, you know, if, if it we got close to that, like I, I probably would have maybe rolled the dice on it, you know, um, just because like I said, I think there's raw power. We know that there's some good comp tools in there and, you know, um, Dan, Rod Dan Roddy there at Northview is great. So I know he's coming from a good program. Uh, you know, I thought the raw power was interesting. Arm strength, not sold. He's a shortstop. Uh, I think that's probably what might hurt him at the end of the day, you know, two years later in Tennessee. Uh, but there are just a lot of qualities to like, and he's, he's in the baseball hotbed, uh, Southern California where, a lot of big leaguers come from. So yeah, I, I, I would have come close. Yeah. I liked Dean a lot. And uh, I just say the reason I would probably fall short is, is just kind of lack of homework on my own end, as far as completing the full scouting process, you know, there was outstanding questions about him um, at the end of the year. And like you said, there's only, there's only so much time uh, available, right? So you've kind of, sometimes as a scout, you will like a player, and but you know you have to work within your team structure and everything and make sure that you are uh you know working on the things that you you need to be paying a lot of attention to because you know dean is super talented was not i believe was not an area code player he was on the yankees team that's right yes he was he made it to the yankees yeah but not the brewers so that was good that he was able to get there um, which which helped, you know, but he I just felt like he had an uphill battle the whole time to try and get to that price. If if Dean were priced a you know differently, do you think that would have and if it was known that he was priced differently, do you think that would have affected the scouting process? Because an example like Nick Peoples was there at Northview the year before him, and then he signed out of high school. So do you do you think how do you think about that framework? I think there's a huge i think to assume a guy won't sign is a huge error on a scout's part like you scout the player um our job is to like complete the process regardless of what the dollar amount is because like you pointed out earlier we're not the one that's writing the checks or making those decisions you know i know personally that was one of my most most embarrassing draft moments was 
not turning in Nick York in the COVID draft who went in the first round to uh, Boston. Like, I love Nick York. I really liked him as a player. I did a ton of work on him. I didn't turn him in because I thought that the fact that I wouldn't give him two and a half million dollars mattered. But again, like, it's not our call. You know, and that was like a really, uh, I think, sobering moment in terms of like, you just never know who they're going to take. So, you know, my job is to best list possible. And then, like you said, run that full circle uh, process on them so that at the end of the day, like, there's no uh, there's no bad feelings or uncertainties when it comes to taking a guy. Yeah, for sure. That makes I mean, you know. I'm pretty early on in the scouting career, so I'm just kind of learning these things still. And uh, yeah, it's I've had some t- tough moments as well. Nothing. I wasn't that that five round draft was probably wild to to be you know an area guy at that time because it's just five rounds and, and anything can happen. Anything did happen. It's I think it's fun to look back on look back on you know and do a redraft there. I, you know I think. Um... I think the the learning lesson for me was like really just separate your list. You know, like if you had to boil it down to like 10 guys you really wanted or five guys you really wanted, like, you know, what's the rationale and reason for it? You know, it's 20 round draft now. I mean, guys still may turn in 50, 60 guys from their area. Well, how are you going to make those five to 10 that you really think are good stand out? Um, you know, and not get watered in the mix with the other guys that have ability, but maybe you don't feel that strongly about. Yeah. And you know what, this is taking me to the area of pref lists and for people watching at home, maybe who aren't familiar with pref lists, a very simple concept. It's just a list of players and listed in the order of your preference, you know? And so you know, I, I work for Toronto and amazing scout there, Tony LaCava, you know, he kind of mentioned to me, we, we talking scouting philosophy and things like that. And we were talking about pref lists and he was bringing up an interesting concept where he was like, I would love to see, it would be cool to see like a pref list of the scouts preference. And then also what the scout thinks the order is of like what they're going to sign for put them in the order of what they're going to sign for, what their industry value is, because those are going to be different lists most mm-hmm. likely. Yeah. And I think that would help to clear up the picture on, or like, you know, make a uh, distinction between the two and kind of communicate something if you had two lists, but it would be harder to maintain. I know. And I think there are two critically important things to know you know the industry value versus your own value you know because those things can be vastly different you know um so how do you, you think know. of the pref list like what do you what's your kind of framework with it just ability i mean like if you're talking just ability uh sorry i guess pref list it's all about just the ability in the player and like where i think they're going to be uh, at the end of the day is a major league player. So, I mean, there's no consideration for like industry value in my pref list. You know, that's like, for me, you know, a second component of, Hey, like this guy's number one on my pref list, 
Um, I know the industry doesn't value him there. Like I would take him in the third or fourth round because of these are the other factors that I think are going to put him in that ballpark. And we just don't want to miss him. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great framework right there. Just don't even think about all those other factors just listed in terms of ability. And then hopefully that brings out the questions that need to be asked about a player, because that's kind of what we do in meetings and things like that. Right. When we all get together, they'll look at your list and they'll say, you know, Hey, where's, how's this guy, you know, and where, where do you think this guy goes and stuff like that. And hopefully that starts to bring the relevant questions to the surface. Right. Oh, how many war is this player going to be in the big leagues? You know, I, I don't know, <laughs> like, right. But I think it could be a mid rotation starter. So, if, I mean, if that's a lot of war, cool. Like you connect the dots on that, but you know, what I'm saying is like, there's that ability there. Um, this is how I would value it. I'd take him in the comp round, you know, what do you want to do? Uh, and then like you have behind you that full circle process, which I really like how you say that, um, that, that gives everybody just peace of mind when it's, you know, that million and a half dollar pick comes up that, all right, we got the hay in the barn, you know, we're, we're, we're going to win this pick and it's going to be a difference maker down the road for us. Um, that's full circle, but I think it's, uh, do you ever find like a small piece of yourself wanting to be contrarian when there's like 50 scouts watching one guy at a ball field? Contrarian in terms of being at a different game? No, like wanting to go the other way. Like clearly if there's 50 scouts at a game watching a guy, the industry values this guy and values him in a pretty decent amount. Like, is there ever that part of you that's like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to punch holes in this guy. This guy sucks. <laughs> oh, I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, I think scouts not should be wired that way, but I think it's always useful to bring a contrarian perspective into your own evaluation, you know, of especially if there's 50 scouts at a game almost where that player is going to be scrutinized so highly because they are, a, you know, demanding a very high value. So you really do have to be super critical of that player and make sure that you address those questions to the utmost degree. And sometimes I think it's easy for scouting because our job is to like players. And then psychologically, you know, we, we pick apart these guys. And it's sometimes tough when you're somebody who's a very optimistic individual by nature about young players getting better and then saying, you know, hearing things that are, you know, kind of limiting what they could end up doing. But I think it's very productive, though, that you have to push through that. And that's something that, you know, hey, route we drive. I mean, not to like toot my own horn or anything. I just think it's relevant to the uh, discussion, like a player like Ralphie Velasquez who Cleveland took last year in the first round, which I was honored to be a part of that process. And there was a lot of questions about him. You know, he's an outstanding player, but you have to, when you spend 2 million plus on a player, you better know everything about him. And then even if there's something that might be under the rug, you know, you better like bring that up above and just see if that's anything at all. Mm. Yeah, what uh, I guess uh, like if hundred percent is I know everything, like 
how close did you get on Ralphie um, for 2 million bucks? You know, like, obviously it's not a hundred, but how close did you think you got to knowing everything? As close as we can get within our, within what we do, you know, yeah. we, we have a, we have a way of going about things. It's, it's not different from other teams just in terms of, of course, we want to know Ralphie. We wanted to know his makeup. We wanted to know his background. We wanted to know his talent. And, you know, we did just like a job, right? You do, you know, you, you go and ask other people about that individual, right? And see, you know, what they say. And it's, it's like being a detective. You're, you're trying to find corroborating evidence, you know, and say, hey, well, Ralphie tells me he does this and this and that. Well, let's verify it. Does he do this, mm -hmm. this and that? And, you know, all throughout the process, it was just continuing to uh, follow up on those items, you know, and like you said, it can never be 100 because you just can't you're not related to the player you don't know him like that and you never will uh but you you hope that within reason you've gotten pretty much as much information as you can to make the team feel comfortable in selecting that player and i think um that was an exemplary process in terms of not only did we select even if we hadn't selected him i think it would have been an exemplary process but since we closed the loop and actually selected him it's like a hard example of this is sort of what it, what i can do and i know that if i do this we can take a guy at this value yeah going back to an event you mentioned ac select i mean you know to see a high schooler like in the context of dodger stadium you know that's another word we've used a lot on the show context you know you see ralphie out there and he goes you know, opposite, well, almost straight away, uh, center field home run, oppo double, I think base hit through the four hole. I mean, like the dude was on fire that day. And you've seen him doing it in that stadium, right? You know, a high school kid going deep to center field in Dodger Stadium. You're going, okay, like there's power, there's, there's barrel awareness, uh, there's approach. Uh, he checks so many boxes. For me as well. And I, I was fired up. You got him. You know, one thing that I know industry wide is, is really big is video. You know, you can always pick the scouts out because they're, you know, on the side getting video, setting up cameras early, which I know both of our orgs uh, do at times. Um, you know, what are things like on the offensive side as a hitter you like to break down with that film? Oh yeah, no, this is a great area. I'm, I'm super interested to get your thoughts too, because you're you're a veteran of that. You come from the coaching perspective, got playing experience, but uh, I love watching video, and I think that's sort of, of the it's it slows the game down, right? So things that you kind of miss in real time, uh, you can really slow everything down and go piece by piece with with uh, what a guy's swing is like. And to me, whether it's a pitcher or a hitter, actually, I, I've I've kind of gravitated towards that that load phase you know of kind of being that initial thing so timing you know you want to see where their position is in the box what their weight distribution is things like that you know kind of where they're wh where you position to pre-pitch and then from there i think you get into the load in the lower half and and sort of how are they connecting and using to using the ground force um in order to you know impact the baseball and I think that's kind of leads you down the 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 sequence of the swing. Mm -hmm. Is is it a is it a good load? Then from there, 
you know, is he using that force in the right way? If, if, if I had a prospect and I said, Hey, I want you to write a video report on this guy. You got to make a call. Would you rather have an at bat from the side in like 90 degrees, or would you rather have an at bat from behind? Oh, is do all I get is one at bat? That's a great question. My instinct tells me I want to I want to see it from behind because I want to see the pitcher and I want to see uh, the batter's reaction and the the ID sort of the recognition. You know, from the side though, I think you can kind of extrapolate that stuff and it's a better like bat speed. Like I feel you get a better feel of bat speed from behind. But if you know what the pitcher is throwing, the velocities then you can kind of also extrapolate that information from behind. Hmm. What do you think? And also come back to your question of what do you look for on video? Yeah, no, well, I, mean, I agree. Like if, if I had to make a call just on video and just having either A or B, I, I would choose the behind home uh, viewpoint. I think you get more information in terms of, you know, hey, where was the pitch? Like, what was his body doing in relationship to the baseball? Because, I mean, that's really all that hitting is and all that matters. So, you know, if you have a side view that's just of the box and the hitter, you know, it's it's hard to – you have to make a lot of inferences on what was the pitch, how fast was it, um, was it in or was it out. Um, you know, those are things that can get, um, I guess – uncertain and so i think from behind you get that clarity of the whole thing you know and you can make better inferences on like the approach and what he wanted to do you know and i'm looking at when i'm looking at film you know like yourself i want to see really just how that body moves the side view is great for like weight distribution how far back do his hands push uh what position is he in uh, before he makes that final commitment to go attack the baseball. Um, how does the finish look? Is, is he upright? Does he fall behind? Does he come through? Um, you know, and then like the view from behind, just, you know, what kind of torque is in the body? Are his hands hidden? Uh, you know, video for me too is useful for like all the little nuances of like, is there something going on with his grip? Uh, you know, like what, what position does this foot land? And I, I think those kind of things can be telling at times as well. Yeah. I loved it. You know, I did a minor league video internship with Milwaukee during my journey, getting in my foot in the door in baseball. And that's when I first started getting the chance to like watch film with players and with coaches. And I was always just amazed at the level of detail that these guys can pick up on little things that I just had not really looked at, you know, where I'm looking at all this stuff. I'm like, Oh, well, you know, his load is here. Or he's, he's, you know, he's kind of disconnected or he's kind of out front right here, you know? And then a coach might be like, yeah, well, look at his, look at his, the way he's gripping the bat, you know? And then how that impacts like this or that, you know? And it's like, Oh man, I hadn't even thought to look for that. So I just think getting an watching video is huge but then also getting somebody else's perspective who's, who's kind of broken it down uh, is also really important as you get to those minutiae, like minutia, uh, little small 
elements of things, which the devil is in the details. Kind of think that's been the thing. The the detail I've been really keen in on of late is I want to see like when the hands stop moving versus when the body starts moving. You know, if that makes sense. Like I, I think like the body starts to swing, you know, whether it's the feet, the ankles, the knees, the hips, um, you know, I feel like the body starts to swing, but like when those hands stop moving, um, in relationship to the ball, you know, like do the hands, are they ready when the ball's out of the hand and then the body just gives you the time to make that decision? Uh, I've been really trying to bear down on that a lot lately in videos and like how ready are this guy's hands to hit? That's awesome, man. I, I, that reminds me of Ronald Acuna's swing. That just brings me for whatever reason, because I just I'm visualizing his swing. I've watched some video of Acuna. He says one of my favorite right-handed swings in baseball. And I feel like he's one of those guys where you're watching him and his body, like he's good with his weight distribution. He's always ready to hit, but his body will go. I feel like his body goes, but his hands stop. And he, but he's in a, just an amazing position though, to like create force, to generate force and get himself on plane. And I think he's a guy who, who uh, sort of gets me thinking about that portion of it but there's so many things in a swing you know and in each each guy is different so what's going to work for one guy obviously isn't going to work for another guy and sometimes you have guys who kind of don't have conventionally pretty swings and things like that but they're highly effective you know so you you have to break that down as well because sometimes it might not look aesthetically pleasing but it, it he's doing a lot of things right actually mechanically otherwise you don't produce to that level did you think that uh ralphie last year had the the prettiest swing in socal no no actually i didn't i thought he is he's got a great swing he knows his identity so well it was crazy you can go back watch videos of he's 14 years old same exactly the same everything Ralphie did tinker a little bit here and there with like hand position or, or, or uh, the, the width of his base. I think Ralphie, I love talking about that example, uh, obviously, because we took him and he's, and he's a stud, but um, just like I had to come around on him, you know, it, it was, it was tough at area codes uh, with the bat, impressive raw power physical, but he's not necessarily the type of profile that I gravitate towards. I'm, I'm always looking for those center fielders, always looking for those short stops. You know, Eric Batanti was a guy in last year's class. Great young man, outstanding player. I thought he had one of the sweetest swings. But, you know, where they were different is Ralphie's performance and just his ability to dominate competition. Like you said, at the area code select, what he did there, at a certain point, you just can't ignore it anymore. And you just have to say, well, hey, even if, even if this guy's swing isn't everything I want it to be, it's it's highly productive and it works for him because he's he was you have to take into account his body. He's so strong, so he doesn't have to do certain things to create to impact the baseball that other guys do. No, I I, I agree. I think uh, you know, take me a guy that's producing over the pretty swinger all day. I think I've made a lot of bad 
both recruiting calls and maybe even at times scouting calls, just based on the fact that the guy's got a pretty swing, you know, it's go to that next step of does it produce? Is there approach? Um, is it as good as it can be? Um, because like you said, at the end of the day, those things are what matter. Uh, production, bat to ball, you know, getting the most out of your swing, whatever it looks like. Yeah, and I think just kind of going deeper into this, wherever my mind leads me with this topic of discussion, just like feel to hit, you know, I think when I was just breaking into scouting, I would see that term a lot and mentioned a lot. And I don't know that it fully computed, you know, and then when you start, I think it really makes sense when you start watching young players and uh, developing in baseball and developing their approach and things like that. And then you kind of start to see okay, there's a difference between a guy who's a pretty swing and then a guy who he's got like his D swing or his F swing can compete, you know, and it, it can, you can foul a ball off so that you can get to your B swing, which might be good enough to, you know, hit a double down the opposite field line or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or guys who are just have a knack for sort of picking the right spots instincts you know i think feel the hit instincts for the game they all kind of come together in one and it's like something that i've been thinking a lot about over these last couple years and in, in learning to evaluate what do, what do you got on that area well sorry uh, you know i'll be honest i was i was kind of going off into my own scenario to ambush you with so i'm, I'm gonna hit it with you say you got a guy that's a maybe a seven bat like this guy's going to hit like 315 plus in the big leagues, maybe even more, but he's not going to hit any home runs. Like the power profile is zero. Like maybe he'll bleed in some doubles. Um, does that guy have value in the big leagues? To me, yes, definitely. You know, you need those guys. You watch, in my opinion, you watch, it doesn't, you know, with where we're at in the game, of course, you watch your world champion, you're watching the World Series, and you know, you need those guys against outstanding pitching. You know, it's not always going to be a home run. It's not always going to be a three-run homer. You're not always going to be slugging it amazing. You need that guy who can pick up a like a base hit with a runner on third or a runner on second, one out. You need a base hit, and he finds you a dribbler, or he knows that spot over there is is unoccupied. You know, and he he'll get you a hit. It might not be the loudest impact but somehow he'll get you a hit. Those guys have value. And I, I will always be a scout. I think who gravitates first towards that, where to me, it starts with like bat to ball and contact skills. You know, like if you, you could be, you could be a seven in all the other areas, but if you are a two or a three in your bat to ball skills in your hit tool, then none of the other stuff will end up mattering. Mm. What do yeah, you think? I, yeah, no, I mean, sometimes I feel like those guys get dinged. Uh, at least maybe from like a, an amateur scouting. Ah, well, he doesn't have any power, like not enough impact with the bat, you know? And I, I just, I feel at times those guys can get discredited based on like how good of a hitter that they truly are and the ability that they, they bring. Cause I just feel like it, they kind of get into the minor leagues and they just kind of get lost in, the shuffle with just yeah like he hits but there's no power 
you know, none of his stat cast metrics like really light up anybody's board and they're just kind of out there when, you know, they could be a guy that potentially does like hit 330 in the big leagues with five home runs. That's a great point. I think that's kind of where the industry does miss sometimes a little bit, get enamored with some of these things. And th those guys and, you know, those guys tend to be like those players who will come out of nowhere, quote unquote, you know, but they were taken in the seventh round or something like that. So they were known to be a good player, but their skills or their tools just weren't flashy and loud and things like that, but they're highly durable and sustainable traits that project well into, into professional baseball. Um, the, the impact piece is like, it's super interesting because I work for Cleveland and just our big league lineup is it's a very contact driven lineup and it lacks punch. Uh, so it's like a, it's a fascinating topic, but I feel like the old adage I've heard, at least in the scouting game is, well, that's kind of what scouts are always under, under, uh, under on, or like usually under project or wrong on is like, they think a guy's power is not going to be good. And then it ends up being better than they ever imagined it. Now, most of the, t I mean, vast majority of the time, you're probably going to be right. Like, you know, there's only certain amount of impact, certain types of bodies and swings can generate, but guys can make adjustments. Guys can surprise you with their physical development sometimes. Uh, so I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting, fascinating topic. I feel like that's a whole episode. I've said this many already a few times, but it's like a whole episode of, you know, power, projecting power and, and, and hit. Yeah. You know, it's watching some of these high school guys, you know, I'm, I'm watching how hard maybe they hit the ball in batting practice. You know, I'm thinking back to some of my experiences as a college coach and even as a scout, I go, how much harder is he really going to hit it? You know, like, I mean, I tend to think like power. Um, I don't feel like it changes a lot, you know, like, I feel like high school guys, like pitchers in particular, you know, they could be 85, 86. And then you look up like three years later and they're throwing 95, 96. Like that's like Matt Ager up at UCSB, you know, like I was looking him up the other day, like three or four years ago, that dude was like 85, 89, you know, and now it's, you know, three to five, you know, and that's in three years, like relative to position players. I don't feel like guys developed that much more bat speed and power. I think it's a great call, but I think it does come from the approach and the swing adjustment side okay. where, you know, you see like, I, I've kind of learned this a little bit where I've watched batting practice too. And you see a guy where, man, this guy doesn't really impact the ball in batting practice, but then in a game, he'll hit a homer or he'll smash a double off the wall because he took a like he took one or two really high intense swings in that entire game and he barreled one of them and it went over the fence so it's kind of like sometimes you find a guy who because of the feel and the instinctual piece of their approach or or sort of just knowing what pitches to swing at and when to pick their spots their game power is actually might be exceed their raw power yeah, without a doubt, you know, that like it's like that concept of like separating, you know, the raw power tool from actual power production, you know, and, and a component of that, too, is the speed. You know, how fast is this guy? Can he leg out doubles? Can he leg out triples? Um, you know, I, I think forecasting the power production 
uh, is big. So like, I would think from a prospect standpoint, you could have maybe a high school guy that goes to college, his raw power might only get a half grade better um, just because maybe he was already strong and physical. So the, the, there wasn't a ton of upside to that, but maybe the power production jumps or you think it has a better chance to jump because he's refined the approach. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know, and we see, we see a lot of examples of that. Like uh, they're all over the place really, but you know, I feel like when I was sort of breaking into baseball and everything, everybody was obsessed with like Chris Taylor, you know, and sort of some of the, the things the Dodgers were doing with getting guys to make swing adjustments and things like that. He had never been known for a guy who was, a power producer, you know, and then all of a sudden he makes this swing adjustment and he's hitting Homer. <laughs> yeah. I'm, cu- I'm curious to see how a couple of pa- former PAC 12 sluggers um, over with the Chicago White Sox do, you know, we have Andrew Vaughn. who was the first rounder. I think picked maybe three or four overall uh, to scout Adam Burgess. You know, he's been in the big leagues. He's, he's been productive, you know, as a big leaguer, you know, I think he, probably brings a, a bigger question of like, Hey, he's a big leaguer and a good one, but like, is he like third pick good? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm curious to see how his, I think third year in the big leagues progresses uh, as well as a former teammate and uh, Houston first round draft pick Corey Lee, who was packaged over to Chicago, um, you know, probably will be his first full season in the big leagues if they if he breaks camp with them and I'm really curious to see how he he does on the offensive side you know it was uh probably 55 power really directed into the other gap right center field um you know volatile minor league career hasn't been posting at the big league level yet so I'm I'm really curious to see how how he comes on this year as well as former SoCal guy, Nick Nestrini, who, you know, went over to the White Sox and the trade with the Dodgers. You know, he was like a real controversial pick going in the fourth round. And, uh, you know, I'm curious to see if he breaks in their rotation this year, whether it's from camp or all-star break, because, you know, he's, uh, he'll be a fun redraft if he ends up doing what he's capable of in the big leagues. Yeah, Nestrini was a fascinating one, and we can get into that one if you want. Uh, Andrew Vaughn, super fascinating too. We were in the that was when I was in the draft room. That was uh, his year uh, with the Rangers. Me, I mean, me and you in the draft room with the with the Rangers that year. And the Rangers had the that was the year they took uh, Josh Young, and so Vaughn wasn't available. But I remember the discussions around Vaughn, and you know, watching video and just how impressive it was. And this guy's a first baseman potentially a DH or, you know, I, I think he's kind of surprised with his athletic profile at the big league level, playing some corner outfield and things like that. I don't know how well, but um, that bat was, was pretty special there at Cal. So it's interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see if it, if it truly translates. A lot of people consider that a very high probability bat. Yeah. And I mean, I think you just, you pull up his numbers, he's produced, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the level that I think maybe the industry was hoping for, like that, especially you want it like pick number three. I mean, hasn't run up like 40 home runs yet. You know, it hasn't quite been like a 310 season, um, you know, so seeing together, hey, third year in the big leagues, like can he pull it together and, and go out there and have like truly that special type of year that 
you know, you're hoping to get with third overall pick. Absolutely. Absolutely. It gets me thinking about going back to past drafts and everything. And I'm just sort of thinking, I don't know if you want to get into it, you want to any uh, like steals, you know, I feel like this is always an interesting topic of like, what any do you, like do you feel like there are any steals like steal the draft in in 2023 you know or a couple steals of the draft hmm. uh steal of the draft you know who i thought was really interesting that i i thought went i don't know maybe like a, t- a touch later than, than maybe i expected and this is kind of on the topic of things we've been discussing was john long at long beach state you know, I think he, I think he went like the ninth or the tenth round. Um, you know, and I thought like power, approach. Uh, I thought there was upside to some certain parts of him. Um, you know, and so to see him kind of win as late as he did, I thought was a little surprising. And um, just given the other things that he did so well, I thought that there would have been more industry value on him. So I'll, I'll be curious how his first year full season goes. Yeah, I like that one. And I didn't have Long Beach, so I don't know much about him, but I did hear his name around a lot. I know a lot of guys definitely liked what he was bringing to the table. I've got a few of them, actually. I mean, I, I really I like liked last year's class a lot here in SoCal, especially. Um, a few high schoolers that ended up signing um, for lower, a little bit lower value than I guess would be expected, but still good value. Uh, Sterling Paddock to the Dodgers. I thought he was just a really excellent left-handed pitcher. I saw him a, a pro- very projectable left-handed pitcher. Uh, I did an in-home meeting with him. Amazing folks and uh, good kid very growth minded, wanted to get better. And I remember what stood out was like, he faced Ralphie uh, at J Sarah on a, on a cold night. And I mean, he gave him everything all he gave him. I mean, he really gave Ralphie a hard time. And that, that, that was a very difficult to do for any pitcher, lefty, righty. I mean, Ralphie was pretty dominant all the way around, but Sterling was probably gave him one of the most, challenging games of the season he was showing great stuff that day his best stuff that i saw in the spring 92 good spin with the breaking ball three four pitches so i thought that was a great get for the dodgers um luke Scherer, after the draft he came out of ukaipa high school where um jacob reimer was the year before and it's always a good program over there with ralph grajeda but they brought over um i'm sorry well they had Luke Scherer get drafted and I, you know, he, he's a good hitter. He was one of those guys who you watch him and you're like, Hey, this guy's got those instincts to hit, mm. feel to hit. And then he was very strong too. And so he was also starting to impact the baseball and finding sort of his spots to pick. So I think that was a steal. Um, Boston Barrow with the, who the Mets took a little bit later. Uh, he was a UCLA commit. And uh, I just thought he had a real pretty swing, good shortstop. One of those guys who will make like 30 errors his first year probably, but could end up being, uh, if everything goes right, could end up being like a gold glover over there in my evaluation. And um, Cole Carrick on the college side, I'll be fascinated to see what happens with that guy because he's one of the most tooled up players I've ever seen. And uh, he went to the Rockies 
And so it's like, uh, you know, he, he's going to have a playground over there as a hitter, right? So he's got, he's got the world at his disposal. It'll be super interesting to see how all that translates to the professional level. You know what I love that you did and you picked them all, you know, three high school guys that all wanted to bet on themselves and go out and play pro ball. You know, you said that they signed for less than what they advertised they wanted or what the agents wanted them to get. Like they wanted to go out and play. And I'll be curious on those three guys, like where their careers are at in three years, you know, because like you think about them being freshmen now, sophomore juniors having to wait on this draft and like, three more years like you know i bet i bet two-thirds of them will be in double a um you know by the time they would come up draft eligible again so i don't know i i think there's it's a land of opportunity for high school guys that want to go out there that have the makeup and then want to bet on themselves uh I, I think there's no better time to get involved with pro ball uh you know and caring too he was another one of the covid high school drafts that uh, wish we could have back, man. I, I loved him. I, I know I put him over Soderstrom just because I, I was that intrigued by the athlete and the tools. Um, you know, we'll look up in three years and we'll see, I guess. I mean, Soderstrom in some ways, like he's got a lot to prove this year uh, at the major league level, um, you know, in terms of his just ability to offend and catch, uh, you know, and Carrig obviously just starting out his pro career. Uh, I'll, be, you know, I'll be really fascinated to see where where that Turlock story ends up when it's all said and done. But Shrug, great episode as always. Thank you for jumping on here with me. I love breaking this down weekly. Oh, 100%, Pat. Yeah, I feel like we were just getting going, so it's good, though, because that'll set us up well for, for the next episode. Great discussion today, Pat. Thanks for joining me as always, and uh, I'm looking forward to next week. That's right. Hey, and if you got any uh, sleeper picks out there, make sure you drop those in the comments section so we can get out there and uh, go scout them. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll throw our socials in there as usual. And we're looking forward, man. Guys, give us some feedback. Throw comments in there. You guys can be the first. And uh, we'll reply, too. We'll get back to you. So we appreciate it. We appreciate anybody who's watching this, we appreciate it. Thank you all so much. And uh, looking forward to next week.